Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Anna Bicicalo, and I'm a graduate student at the at Harvard University working on the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Olga Bertelsen uh, about her new book, In the Labyrinth of the KGB, Ukraine's Intelligentsia in the 1960s and 1970s. Dr. Olga Bertelsen has been an associate professor of global security and intelligence at Ohio's Tiffin University School of Criminal Justice and Social Sciences since 2021 educated at the Medical State University in Ukraine, Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, Penn State University, and the University of Nottingham in the UK. She has published widely on Soviet and Russian operations of ideological subversion, political violence in the USSR, and the methods and traditions of Soviet and Russian secret police. With special interests in Ukrainian and Russian history and intelligence, Dr. Bertelsen's research focuses on political violence, bioterrorism, covert action, counterintelligence, and U.S. national and global security. She's the author of The House of Writers in Ukraine in the 1930s, Conceived, Lived, Perceived, from 2013, and the editor of three anthologies of archival KGB documents, as well as two collections of scholarly essays entitled Revolution and War in Contemporary Ukraine from 2017, and Russian Active Measures from 2021. Dr. Bertelsen's new book, In the Labyrinth of the KGB, from Lexington Books, was published in 2022, and it focuses on KGB covert operations that targeted Ukraine's intelligentsia and the Ukrainian and Jewish diasporas in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Please welcome Dr. Olga Bertelsen. Hello, Anna. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's, it's a pleasure to get to speak to you about your fascinating book. I anticipate that readers will definitely, listeners will definitely have to read the whole book because we won't be able to cover all the fascinating detail. Um, but I look forward to our discussion today. So my first question uh, is a common one that we do on the New Books Network. And that is, how did you get started in your field? How did you come to this field of Eastern European studies? It was just a long, long, long way. Um, And actually, um, my first degree is in medicine, which I I believe shaped my further research interests, uh, which is bioterrorism, biological weapons. But um, my life changed since I emigrated to the United States. And I've been interested in um, uh, the intelligentsia, in some kind of intellectual, cultural life of, of Ukraine. That's my primary interest. And despite the fact that I was a medical doctor, I've been reading, I've been researching, I've been working in the archives for a long time. And that is just a sort of a logical continuation of my 
uh, hobby, if, if, you, if you will. And then um, I defended my PhD thesis in, in, uh, in the West. Um, and that's how it happened. And I continued. And I'm glad that I continued this way because, uh, you know, what is underestimated, I believe the, uh, precisely the intelligence aspect of, of uh, Soviet and Ukrainian history. Uh, which which provides us with a sort of a very rich uh, new perspective uh, on how things were happening. I mean, for, from perhaps my, my interest is Soviet history and, and Russian and Ukrainian history. So uh, from the beginning of the 20th century um, until perhaps present time. So I, I believe uh, that's what was overlooked and I'm trying to write to fill this gap in scholarship, to write a little bit about the um, traditions, uh, the traditions of the Soviet and Russian uh, intelligence uh, secret services. So I mean, uh, which, uh, which is something that is missing, I feel. Great. Yeah, that's a fascinating intellectual trajectory. And I, I think you're absolutely right that um, a robust and systematic analysis of, of Soviet and, and contemporary intelligence in the Eastern European sphere um, is especially important for understanding the people who were on the receiving end of that intelligence, um, like so much of this book is about. So how um, did this book in particular come about? Uh, what made you turn to these stories? Um, all of us, all of us have personal and professional um, sort of reasons uh, behind us, our research. So how it happened uh, initially, I was perhaps uh, because of my family background, because I was born to a family of a Ukrainian poet. Uh, and uh, of course, I was part of this milieu, the 1960s and 70s, when I was a, a small child, I grew up among those people who are part of this narrative. Uh, my father was a Ukrainian poet, and uh, we tend to write about those things that we know best, uh, of course. So that was just some sort of personal motivation uh, for me. And second, um, there is literature on, on the cultural and political movements um, that uh, took place in the in the 1960s and, and uh, 1970s in Kiev and Lviv, but very little, in my view, has been written about uh, post-Stalinist Kharkiv. Uh, and we know just a lot of uh, books, uh, especially that uh, were published in the West, uh, on Shizdisyatnitstvo or the 60s movement uh, that occurred in, in Lviv, in Kiev, but nothing about Kharkiv. And I, I just believe that this sort of, again, gap, uh, historical gap um, should have been filled. Uh, and uh, that's just another reason why I uh, paid so much attention to this particular city. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't forget that uh, the city of Kharkiv has... Um, a rich intellectual and, and literary history and has been historically populated with various ethnic groups contributing to um, its diverse cultural traditions. 
So Soviet Kharkiv was also linguistically, we know, diverse, right? And um, as this book shows, um, language chosen by, by the writers and inherited by them by birth largely uh, sort of shaped their, I would say, relationships with the local authorities and the KGB. And that's just something that interested me from the very beginning uh, because uh, that's just very important how the KGB and the local authorities pay attention to the language that uh, the, the Ukrainian, the Russian, the meaning ethnically, Ukrainian, Russian, and Jewish intellectual elite used in Kharkiv. Uh, and uh, it's it just uh, fascinating how they tended to um, pay attention precisely to the language that the writers used in their private lives and, of course, the language that they wrote, um, their, their literary sort of work so I mean uh, and that's just the approach that I, I, I took but there was another of course motivation for me because as you uh, might know um, it's uh, that's what happens in, in the West uh, perhaps um, I would say the, the uh, Western scholars tend to examine Ukrainian culture, Soviet culture, Soviet history, Ukrainian history from a sort of a Russo-centric perspective. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the majority of them work in uh, sometimes exclusively in Moscow archives. And that's why we have sort of a, a very limited um, picture in terms of what was happening in, 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 in Ukraine at this particular time in the 1960s and 70s, one of the most uh, interesting and important periods in, in, the, uh, in Ukraine culture, um, culture and actually history. And this, I would say, lopsided view of Soviet history grounded in research conducted exclusively in, in uh, Russian archives reflects uh, a trend very symptomatic of, of Western scholarship, which largely, as I mentioned earlier, adopted a, a Russo-centric view of realities in a multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic entity such as the, the Soviet Union. So uh, that's another motivation um, that sort of encouraged me to, to proceed with this narrative, with this story this research that that makes complete sense and i was going to ask you what is so special about Kharkiv, but i think you've explained it very well um and i certainly agree about the um predominantly russocentric nature of a lot of uh late soviet scholarship um but even i think often uh we take the story of Soviet Kiev or the story of Soviet Lviv to mean the story of Soviet Ukraine. And you very compellingly show in this book that um, there is something unique going on in Kharkiv and, and these stories really deserve our attention as well if we want to understand the whole picture. Um, so now I'd like to go a little bit more into the details of the book. Um, and I think our listeners are probably familiar with the idea of de-Stalinization um, that begins when Khrushchev comes to power. 
Um, but in your book, you also discuss the concept of re-Stalinization uh, beginning in the, the 1960s and through the 1970s. Um, can you explain a bit more what that means in this context? Sure. Uh, and by the way, some kind of, I, I have personal recollections about how this particular topic, I was a, a child back then, but I, I remember how um, even after uh, it happened, I mean, the process already uh, was noticeable, not only for, for the intellectual elite in Kharkiv, but for everybody. Uh, but I remember the year of approximately, I, I think, 1968, 1969, I, I was five or six. And this topic was vigorously discussed uh, by my parents. Uh, and I remember those sort of fears that they expressed in terms of how there is no freedom, not only for writers, but basically uh, no freedom, freedoms were left uh, in Ukraine or generally speaking in the Soviet Union. So I, I have some kind of personal recollections and it's just strange. I was five, six, then a little bit later, seven, and I still remember that uh, uh, that was just part of, of those conversations uh, within the family. Uh, but uh, what does it mean, restalinization? Uh, by the way, it happened uh, rather quickly. We remember those first fresh winds of, of freedom after the 20th um, Congress uh, Party Congress, right? Um, uh, the process of censorship was not that intense. Uh, people began to believe that we can write something that we're interested in uh, and everything is allowed. Uh, you, you remember how this process perhaps started in the capital of the Soviet Union in Moscow when uh, uh, there the Russian Poets, Vesnysensky, Yevtushenko, Ahmadulina, Akujava, they read their po poems in the streets, uh, in the Polytechnical um, Institute, and this sort of uh, freedom became, uh, or, or this spirit, or, or this sort of perception became conta contagious, right? And, and the Ukrainian poets began to feel. Uh, the same need to express themselves publicly. And they embraced a very similar tradition very quickly. They began to read their poems in the streets, especially uh, in, the, uh, in front of the very famous back then in the 1960s um, um, bookstore, Poesia. Uh, so it was just very memorable, memorable events for those who lived in Kharkiv during this particular time. But suddenly what happened in the, um, I would say, began to happen in 1958, uh, and there were only two years, right, uh, passed since this um, Congress um, or, or the Congress of the Party and since uh, Khrushchev's speech, not so so secret speech, uh, but what began to sort of unravel, people realized that uh, they they couldn't publish what they wanted to publish. Uh, for instance, cultural institutions in Kharkiv suffered greatly as a result of this sort of 
process of curtailing of cultural institutions. Uh, uh, I remember how, and I read about this uh, later, how um, the KGB sort of hijacked the literary uh, journal Prapor, uh, the banner, and uh, during these two years, the readers, the readership of, of uh, Prapor became very broad, and people, uh, ordinary people who waited for these issues of Prapor, they suddenly realized that, you know, no, nothing is happening, so nothing is just uh, getting out and that was just the first sign signs of, of this process of of renewed censorship uh, of, of those freedoms that had been curtailed by the KGB and by the local authorities if we're speaking uh, about Kharkiv uh, and that's uh, only the first that that the first signs I would say of, of this sort of um, retreat from the original relaxation uh, of, of Soviet policies. Uh, but later we began to observe that all those uh, rehabilitation campaigns were curtailed. Um, Shellist uh, stopped working. Uh, he was part of those rehabilitation campaigns, um, trying to, to um, review all those criminal cases, individual and collective or group criminal cases, trying to understand if they were legitimate. But this process sort of stopped, and I would say rather abruptly, and the order came absolutely from from, from, from the central authorities, from, from Moscow. So all those processes are associated with this particular uh, term, restalinization. Uh, and uh, uh, later we know what happened with uh, the local authorities in in in, uh, in Ukraine because they were dismissed, um, and Moscow decided to actually install those people in Kiev first of all, uh, who would be in charge of the KG, of the KGB and and um, those party authorities that were extremely loyal to Moscow. So, I mean, a lot of people were simply removed from their positions, including, I mean, Shellist, and this is just one of those uh, cases that we know very well. Uh, and it's very well documented how it happened. Today we know how it happened. So this is just one of those uh, um, very important um, processes that started precisely in 1958. Restalinization. Right. Thank you for that explanation. And um, we'll return a little bit later to the state perspective and sort of the secret police's approach to this continued repression or renewal of the repression. Um, for right now, I am interested to hear a bit more about the writers, the intelligentsia that you are writing about. So um, your book covers the experiences of many individuals and literary and intelligentsia circles in Kharkiv, um, covering, I would say, a couple of generations even of, of different writer groups. Um, who are some of the important people that you feel you write about um, and what do their stories reveal to us about this period for Kharkiv's intelligentsia? Um, perhaps Tretyakov or Chichibabin, um, I think readers would or listeners would love to hear some some details about their 
um, trajectories. Uh, certainly, uh, and for, for me, it was just very important to uh, cho uh, choose not only those individuals who were famous, and they were extremely famous back then, Chichibabin, uh, Tretyakov, who came from Kiev to Kharkiv, uh, Brugin, but also it was just amazing uh, that these people represented um, different ethnic groups. Ethnically, they were diverse, and I wanted to, to uh, take a look at, at their interactions, uh, how, how they are sort of uh, interacted, how they perceived the, the, the time uh, in which they lived, how did they, what they talked about, what did they discuss, what united them. Uh, for instance, Bruggen had both German, ethnic German, and Jewish uh, roots. Tretyakov was clearly of Russian ethnic background, but he became a, a Ukrainian poet. Uh, Cherevchenko, uh, uh, Alexander Cherevchenko, uh, famous uh, Russian poet. Today he lives in the in the Russian Federation, and sadly pro-Kremlin, pro-Putin, uh, anti-Ukrainian. But back then, when they were very young, uh, they uh, what united them, uh, people of, of uh, very uh, different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, what united them is just, first of all, love uh, for literature, uh, so professional interest, and of course, uh, this is just feeling of of uh, resistance, I would say, because everybody understood that the uh, process of restalinization uh, began and they uh, wanted to cope with this particular process without being physically or intellectually killed. Uh, and uh, Chichibabin, by the way, was also uh, of Russian background, right? Um, but all those people are, are very different in terms of their approach to literature, to, to um, in terms of their worldviews even. But this is uh, those two things that united them. Uh, and uh, in their conversations, you, you almost feel this uh, sort of their shared feeling of togetherness when, when I spoke with all of them uh, because they wanted to be part of this resistance. And resist when I say resistance, uh, you know, all kinds of resistance. I mean, passive, active, um, internal immigration. For some of them, uh, there was physical immigration as a solution. Uh, so, but... Uh, those individuals were very interesting to me, and the, that was just the motivation why I chose them uh, as human beings, as poets, uh, as creative human beings, as those people who understood the reality. Uh, and uh, um, on top of everything, I knew them personally, and that was just a perfect sort of excuse for me to uh, go deeper uh, in terms of understanding them uh, as as uh, people and how they felt about the, the power, how they tried to survive. So, and uh, I mentioned those people, I can repeat them again. Volodymyr Bryuhin, who was one of the most famous, most prolific uh, literary critics uh, in, in Ukraine, 
probably the caliber of, of Ivan Zuba, um, if, if you think of those individuals, uh, and uh, who wrote at the same time and worked during this particular time. Uh, then uh, Robert Ritekov, um, a subtle Ukrainian poet who happened to be my father. Uh, I can be subjective very subjective, but at the same time, uh, it took me a while to understand who he was. Because as you understand, uh, when we grow up, we tend to underappreciate our parents. Uh, we know very little about them. And uh, this, by the way, book provided me with this opportunity to learn more about him as a human being, as a poet, as, as a uh, citizen as a Ukrainian with a strange Russian name, Tritiakov. Uh, and uh, I mentioned also Chichibabin. Uh, this is just uh, not only a name uh, in literature. Uh, he contributed not only to, to Russian literature or to literature that was born out of Kharkiv, uh, but um, uh, he contributed to world literature. Absolutely, we shouldn't underestimate uh, his sort of contribution. Uh, and uh, that's how these uh, names uh, emerged, and I focused on their individual histories. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of people uh, also who are present in this narrative beyond them, because it's, it was just quite an uh, extensive sort of number of people who are part of this narrative. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And I think your unique access to um, both your, your father and his, his circle of literary friends and acquaintances, um, I think, were really to, to the benefit of this book, because you do uh, an excellent job of reconstructing these circles and, and networks of, um, of writers and thinkers um, which which might be hard to do otherwise from you know archival materials. Um, my next question: uh, You started to cover it a little bit when you mentioned that these writers were, above all, trying to survive. And I was curious about um, the priorities of Kharkiv writers and creatives during this period, both in the initial period of re-Stalinization, late fifties, early sixties, and then maybe through the seventies. So. What would you say are some of their priorities as, as artists, as thinkers, and how did those change um, as circumstances changed? Uh, there is no Anna, doubt that uh, all those people tried to survive. Uh, they adopted uh, a lot of methods, a lot of strategies, uh, and they were all different. Uh, we cannot just... Um, sort of suggest that there was one approach to this particular dilemma or problem of, of, of this violence that uh, they began to observe in, in Kharkiv. Uh, they all had their uh, different tricks, but all of them, if we think about uh, priorities, all of them try to preserve their integrity. Uh, only a few, and I just uh, emphasize this in, in my book, only a few uh, became um, informants. And today I, I didn't feel comfortable um, revealing their names, but I know all of them who cooperated with their KGB intensely. Uh, but uh, if, if you think about the numbers, 
perhaps there were only two or three percent of those who actively or passively collaborated with with the KGB. Uh, others were trying to steal. Again, returning to your question uh, about priorities, they would desperately try to to preserve some kind of integrity and and uh, their humanity, if you will. Uh, indivi- they realized that individually they couldn't do this, so that's why uh, this sort of unity emerged among them. They used a lot of tricks um, to not to be obvious. And by the way, this is one of those reasons why um, researchers tend to examine Lviv and and Kiev when they write about Shizdesyatnitsvo, because uh, Kharkiv was almost unnoticeable uh, for for, um, uh, those researchers because it... uh, It it was just... uh, how, How should I put it? Uh, it was just completely provin- prov- provincialized and quiet in this respect. because, uh, And that's uh, the perception that uh, a lot of researchers uh, have, uh, that uh, Kharkiv was not the city where a lot of people were active culturally or politically, which is not true. Um, first of all, uh, the KGB did their best in terms of trying to provincialize the the city and this community and the art or the the, the poetry or, or uh, creative work that that they try to still to continue to do to be engaged in, uh, and perhaps they were successful the KGB in this respect because a lot of people were silenced, a lot of people. Um, uh, were resistant, but passively resistant. Uh, um, but uh, we also know that violence had a, a profound effect on many individuals because during this particular time, we uh, observe how uh, many people uh, sort of, perhaps I shouldn't say many, but a few simply f- disappeared from the planet. Some of them committed suicide and some of, some of them were physically killed. Uh, and uh, perhaps, again, returning again to your question, perhaps the task of survival uh, was sort of uh, dominated their, their minds uh, at this particular point. And we, we are talking about the, about, about the beginning of the 1960s. Um, Mykola Shatilov, who was one of the most subtle uh, um, prose writers in, in Kharkiv, he identified this period, the next decade, the 1960s in Ukrainian as Kliati Simdesyati, which is a rhyme, and in Ukraine it is just the cursed 70s. Uh, why is it so? Because, uh, of course, uh, the, the intellectual elite sensed uh, this... Um, sort of uh, violence that started uh, at the earlier, perhaps, 1960s. But later, uh, in a decade or so, uh, they observed another wave of repressions, meaning in the 
that started in in 1972 when Moscow changed their leadership uh, in in Kharkiv, the KGB leadership, the party leadership. So their priority was to to um, be quiet, but at the same time to preserve some kind of uh, integrity and to. Uh, continue to write. If they couldn't publish, they they wrote anyway uh, and tried to to hide their work because there were searches uh, in Kharkiv and there were bugs. All apartments of writers were bugged, absolutely. And today we have evidence that confirm uh, their fears. So I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, that's just uh, the balance between this idea of, of uh, preserving their, their, their work, their internal sort of integrity and simple survival. Certainly, right. Um, yeah, I can imagine how, especially in such an atmosphere, that would be a, an incredibly important priority. Um, but as you show in the book with many excerpts from their poetry, for example, um, they still certainly maintained their creative practice um, despite these really, really significant challenges. Um, and now I think it will make sense to discuss a little more um, what what created this atmosphere of violence and fear. So in the book, you discuss um, the KGB and, and secret police approach of divide and conquer uh, of these intelligentsia circles. Um, uh, so I would like to ask you to speak on that a little bit more of sort of what are the tactics used by the KGB? And related to this question, um, part of what intrigued me about the book is the very title in the labyrinth of the KGB. So um, can you explain a bit more what this metaphor means to you and, and how it can explain uh, the experiences of the writers you write about. Uh, thank you, Anna, for this question. First of all, uh, it was just not uh, particularly my idea uh, about um, how I would entitle this book. Uh, I heard this over uh, this metaphor, if you will. I heard this metaphor over and over and over again from uh, those writers with whom I spoke. Uh, Bruggen, for instance, it was his initial idea and actually a request. Uh, he told me, Ola, write a book, please, about our life, because uh, I just read a lot of narratives. And by the way, he was one of those few writers who um, spoke English, German, and French. And uh, he translated um, very famous French-German uh, and American writers uh, into Ukrainian, and he was very proud of this. So he said, I read uh, some narratives about our life here in the 1960s and 70s, and I'm sort of perplexed. I, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure that they understand uh, what was really happening here. Please write a book, because it was just... Uh, sort of a labyrinth that they created for us, the KGB. We were wondering, actually willingly entered this labyrinth. Uh, we, we were lost there. Some of them, some of us died in this labyrinth. Some, some of us survived. But still, it was a, a labyrinth uh, that the KGB created and uh, uh, it just backfired. Uh, their sort of uh, 
invention or the um, sort of attempt to catch us somehow or to silence us uh, didn't work because what it did, uh, it united us in this attempt to, to uh, preserve our cultural and literary traditions, to preserve our language, to preserve our integrity, to finally to preserve our work that they continued to write. They couldn't publish uh, much of it, but uh, they continued to write. Um, so, the, and not only Bruggen used uh, this particular term or metaphor, if you will, a lot of people uh, with whom I talked, they just uh, used this particular term. For them, it was just a, a path uh, that they tried to navigate. And for, for many of them, this path uh, was absolutely tragic, absolutely tragic. Uh, some writers tried even to commit suicide because they couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, some of them were successful. Uh, some of them were not. They were saved by, by their friends. But uh, that's just the atmosphere that uh, you can imagine of what, what, what they try to do during this particular uh, difficult, difficult time. And uh, uh, the first square, this is just answering the second part of your question about the title, actually. And the first part of your question was, remind me again, please, about... Um, what specifically were the tactics used by the KGB to uh, create this atmosphere? Um, first of all, we, we understand that the official narrative was, of course, uh, about uh, friendship among... Um, the nations, uh, various ethnic groups, internationalism, and uh, we're all familiar with this sort of official narrative uh, that um, emanated from, from the center. In reality, uh, what, for instance, the KGB was doing, they were trying to fragment uh, this uh, community somehow along ethnic lines. Why? Because it was very easy to deal with, with separate individuals rather than with a, a coherent or, or, or sort of a group of people, a, a constellation of, of bright uh, writers, thinkers, if you will, uh, that are united on some kind of, you know, basis. They didn't want that. So when they um, understand, understood that uh, there is some sort of a rapprochement, there is a French good French word for, for this particular process, when they observed this rapprochement among um, Jewish uh, writers of Jewish, Russian, and, and Ukrainian writers, they realized that they have to do something. They have to design a certain strategies and tactics to, to fragment them, to isolate them. So they deliberately provoked uh, and, and instilled hostilities among them. How did they do this? A variety of ways. Uh, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, one of those interesting approaches uh, that uh, Bruggen shared with me, I remember how he told me that he was invited to, uh, to one of those prophylactic meetings to the headquarters of the KGB in Kharkiv. And he uh, attended this meeting. He came 10 minutes before. Uh, it was happening in Chernyshevsk Street. Um, and uh, he uh, saw another writer, the, the member, a member of, of the Writers' Union, 
uh, who was sitting and waiting uh, for his appointment. Uh, they were sitting and there was a quite a distance and everybody suspected that perhaps both of them suspected that maybe this person is one of those informants. Well, what is he doing here? And and the, this feeling was mutual. Uh, Bruggen was, and he, he told me on a number of occasions, they believed in my Jewishness. Uh, also, I, I have uh, a lot of bloods in, in me. Um, German, Jewish, Russian, Ukrainian. So I am a mixture, but I, they perceived me as, as a person who uh, primarily of, of Jewish background. Uh, they didn't know any better. So they just tried to uh, invite a person who was, uh, for instance, an ethnic Ukrainian. And, and then, uh, you know, those people were not allowed to communicate in those halls, waiting halls. And uh, they deliberately just sort of tried to, to uh, place them together in one constrained space uh, where uh, a space of, of mutual suspicion, uh, fear, uh, and that was just one of those innocent tactics, but there were some other tactics, very, very direct. For instance, during those prophylactic talks uh, that the KGB began to engage in, uh, they uh, literally was, was saying, for instance, to a person of a Jewish background, what are you doing? Why are you a friend with this uh, Ukrainian? They, they are holodomorniki. All they know, they, they talk about the Holodomor, they, oh, that's all they know. And plus, don't forget, they killed Jews during World War II. So that kind of stereotypical uh, sort of, they try to sustain actually this um, stereotype and stereotypical narrative that all Ukrainians are organic anti-Semites. So uh, we would strongly recommend you, so you just sort of break these links and, and don't be associated with this person, and vice versa, of course. So they, they, the KGB were pretty uh, much, um, they, they were direct when uh, they had these private, private conversations. If we uh, look at a broader picture, and look at those transnational covert operations. This is just a totally another matter, but I just discuss a little bit uh, this kind of operations in my book. Uh, that was just a concerted effort on the part of, of many, many institutions uh, in Ukraine, including Ukraine, meaning the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the KGB, uh, cultural institutions. And what they were trying to do, they were trying to also to break those links among uh, the Jewish and the Ukrainian diaspora in the West. And what did they do? Why did they want you to do that? Because the diaspora became very, very active in terms of uh, human rights movement that emerged in the West during the 1960s. I believe it became noticeable in the middle of, of the 1960s. And they established a lot of links, personal links, with those people who lived in Kiev and Kharkiv and Odessa, especially with the intellectual elite. With, with the writers, and those links had to be broken, both domestically uh, and, and um, internationally, especially in North America. 
So this is just a uh, perhaps a long answer to your question, but that's just uh, one of those um, approaches. I mean, uh, or a couple that I. Uh, sort of mentioned. By the way, I would like to mention this particular book in this respect. Um, Lubomir Lusyuk published a wonderful book uh, recently, and the title of this book, Operation uh, Payback, uh, in this book he discusses in detail all those transnational operations that the KGB was involved in uh, to instill hostilities among uh, the Ukrainian and between the Ukrainian and the Jewish diasporas in in North America and to to break their links and uh, to curtail their assistance to those people who suffered uh, in in Ukraine, Jews and and Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for that book recommendation. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate finding out more. Um, And I think if, I think one of the chapters in your, in your book that really, uh, drove home for me the idea of the labyrinth and how it was created is the chapter about um, the use of Holodomor discourse, Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine of 1931-32, um, and how the KGB used this discourse to kind of tra- entrap and, and logically trick um, their interlocutors into confessing some sort of, you know, nationalist allegiance or, or something like that. Um, so that chapter was was very helpful in that regard. Um, I also wanted to ask a follow-up to to this question of KGB tactics, because another chapter that I found incredibly striking is the chapter on psychiatric abuse and the incarceration of dissidents and perceived nationalists uh, in psychiatric facilities um, and the abuses that they suffered. so I wanted to just ask you to speak a bit more about the the experience of these writers in psychiatric facilities and um, perhaps to comment on why or whether this part of late Soviet history tends to be ignored or, or not as, as much paid attention to, because I think um, it's a really important part of the the narrative of re-Stalinization. Oh, thank you, Anna, for this question. But uh, I, I wouldn't uh, characterize the, the sort of the uh, scholarship on this particular topic as as limited because uh, there are a lot of work that um, have been published on psychiatric abuse uh, in the West, uh, in the Russian Federation, in the Soviet Union. Uh, in Ukraine, independent U- Ukraine, so the, the, in the Soviet Union, obviously, uh, this literature came later, I mean, after 1991, but uh, I mean, all kinds of languages, uh, those books uh, have been written in, in German, in, in French, in English, in Russian, in Ukrainian, so the literature on psychiatric, uh, punitive psychiatry is extensive. However, why I wanted to Uh, include this particular chapter in this book because I realized that uh, the figure of, for instance, Viktor Borovsky was overlooked uh, and uh, um, I didn't want to write something that uh, already everybody knew because of this extensive literature and scholarship on the topic. But uh, amazingly, my father was um, discussing at some point 
with me uh, the figure of a very um, interesting young poet. Uh, he was born in Lozava near Kharkiv, and my father was in uh, in the 1960s and 70s uh, was the editor of the uh, poetry department in um, the journal proper. And this person, whose name is Viktor Borovsky, came uh, to him as as the, the editor of this particular uh, department, poetry department, and he brought his poems to him. And uh, he said, listen, I, I've never, it was just so um, striking that I was looking at this very, very young boy. He was 16 or 17 at this particular point. And uh, I began to read his poetry when he left. He just asked for my opinion. Uh, and uh, my father said, I will be brutally honest with you and I will also give your poems to to um, perhaps to some other poet and you will have another opinion also but they agreed that they will meet in a week or in two weeks uh, and uh, my father recalled that it was just like a, a f- sort of fresh wind uh, in this particular room where he was in his uh, uh, office and he said I couldn't stop reading because I couldn't understand how uh, this young um, uh, boy actually very young human being uh, could produce uh, this poems, poetry filled with some kind of intellectualism uh, national spirit, beautiful language uh, he was he saw him as a very mature poet, and he waited for him, and Borowski never came, never. And my father never knew what happened to him, never learned uh, what happened with Borowski, and that's how I got to him, Uh, I mean, to this particular uh, person, uh, very young literati, if you will, uh, uh, in Kharkiv, who just started. He was not even published. I mean, he didn't publish anything. He he just wrote those poems. Uh, and uh, what happened to him, he was arrested by the KGB because uh, his, first of all, uh, on uh, because of two particular reasons. He spoke in his private life in Ukrainian, and that was just already suspicious. And second, uh, they um, got hold of... of due secret searches, they just found his poems that were extremely patriotic at the same time. Uh, And uh, uh, they were written in in Ukrainian. So they uh, talked with him first. And when they realized that he's just, from their perspective, is a a Ukrainian nationalist, they just placed him in Saburavadacha immediately. Uh, so he ended up being treated there as, as a, um, a person who had supposedly, allegedly, a psychiatric disease. Uh, he emigrated uh, eventually. Actually, the KGB threw him uh, from the Soviet Union. He was lucky, actually, to, to um, survive this torture. Uh, he ended up living in Canada, but then he moved to the United States, and I tried to find his traces in the West. It turned out uh, 
by 2013, I was hired by Columbia University. And I hope to find him in New York because I realized he lives in New York, but it was too late. Viktor Barovsky passed away in 2009, but he managed to publish a wonderful, brilliant book uh, in the West, in Ukrainian, about what happened to him. And this is uh, this book should be translated uh, into English at some point. But I realized this example is too valuable, too precious to to not to um, examine further and to write about this person. Unfortunately, I was late, and he had cancer. He passed away in two thousand nine, and. Uh, that's how I decided I conceived this chapter to write specifically about this person. But most importantly, Anna, uh, he represented perhaps uh, the, the, the uh, cohort of people who ended up uh, in Kharkiv, in Saburova Dacha, because they were hidden there, isolated there by the authorities and by the KGB, because if you remember in the 1970s, Andropov uh, pursued this particular uh, sort of um, path for those people who were nationalists or who were considered nationalists. We will hide them in psychiatric clinic clinics, we will isolate them, uh, and uh, that's um, how Victor and many other people ended up in, in psychiatric clinic clinics. By the way, it's just a very interesting story about Saburova Dacha. It has to be uh, examined further, explored further, because this is just the place that we know very little about, because a lot of scholars were writing about Dnipropetrovsk, uh, about other uh, Serbsky in the Serbsky Institute in Moscow, but very little has been written about Saburova Dacha. Uh, where the tactics uh, were actually the same or more vicious even. So I'm still just sort of thinking about this idea about a book project on specifically on um, the Kharkiv Psychiatric Clinic, Saburova Dacha. Mm. Yeah, some of the details um, in, in this chapter about the, the specifics of the psychiatric abuse and the, the effects of the drugs that they were um, forced to take are really uh, difficult to read and, and compelling and, and definitely worth worth doing more research about. So thank you. Um, my next question is a kind of from um, my fascination with the um, the ethnic backgrounds of the writers that you discuss. And you, you've already touched on this to, to some extent, um, but I just wanted to say that first, the way you balance the experiences of, of individuals and the multiple ethnic groups that they represent, Jewish, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, people of mixed background is, is very impressive. Um, can you explain a bit how the sources led you to write such an integrated story? In other words, is it even possible to tell this story from the perspective of just people of, of a single ethnic group, or was it... Um, from the very start, you saw that you would have to integrate um, writers from from these different backgrounds. First of all, that's the community uh, that uh, we're looking at. I mean, that's the people who um, were living during this particular time. They were all, you know, had different background, cultural and ethnic backgrounds. That's uh, uh, 
community of, of writers in Kharkiv uh, that were, uh, by the way, among them uh, were not only Jews, Russians, or Ukrainians. There were Azerbaijanis, Georgians. Uh, unfortunately, under the circumstances, they uh, were forced, many of them, to use uh, the Russian language. It was just a lingua franca of, 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 of the Soviet Union, and that's how the KGB sort of um, tried to, to, to persuade those people who used languages other than Russian in their private life. Nobody understands you. And by the way, I, I want to mention this um, in this particular context, that the uh, local authorities, meaning party authorities and um, KGB authorities, they were extremely anti-Ukrainian, anti-Semitic, uh, and uh, they were installed, actually, all those individuals by Kiev, and Kiev was actually recommended uh, that those people ha- um, had to be sent to, to, to Kharkiv to take care of, of this uh, cultural affairs and perhaps of this resistance or nationalism, nationalistic tendencies that the KGB began to report um, about. So um, I believe that uh, perhaps uh, th- those people of, of various backgrounds, um, the, the, it's not probably Anna, about the sources, but about its where did it come from? This idea about writing about this multi-ethnic community. First of all, I, I interacted with them constantly. They were part of my life. Uh, and when I was young, when I was a child, when I was just a, a more mature individual, uh, because they came to our house and I remember many of them. And later when I already immigrated to the United States, we maintained uh, um, this relationship even after my father passed away. So I remember them back then. I remember them um, and what they were saying um, in the 1980s, because so you realize that uh, Gorbachev's perestroika and uh, this sort of uh, a new approach to a new life in the Soviet Union influenced them. They realized that we are fair a little bit in terms of expression. I remember what they were saying back then, uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I remember our conversations when um, they occurred um, when Ukraine was independent already, became independent. Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, there was a drastic difference uh, between those individuals that I knew as a child, as, as, a, and a, as a person who was 18 or, or 19, and uh, when I just knew them a little bit later. I remember them still, the same people who were very frank with me, with my father, but everybody was very careful. I have to to mention this absolutely because everybody realized that we can we we can share our uh, sincere uh, opinions about various matters, including political matters, only in certain places. Because after a while, it became clear that they have to search for those places where they felt safe. Uh, 
the the um, headquarters of proper uh, they were bugged. Uh, the writers of union was bugged. Uh, the apartments of of uh, all those individuals that I'm writing about they were bugged. Unfortunately, and today I'm mentioning again this that today we have confirmation about this particular KGB approach. So they couldn't find even a place where they could freely talk. But uh, uh, perhaps that was just uh, something that uh, motivated me to write about all those people who happen to be of various ethnic uh, backgrounds. But uh, another thing, another thing, I realized that there is a certain stereotypical um, view of those relationships, I mean, between, especially in the West, um, between, for instance, uh, the Ukrainians and, and, and the Jews, and I, I, I experienced otherwise. I saw a community of friends. I, I saw a community of people who were uh, genuinely interested in each other's work, creative work, and uh, they were friends. So, and I thought, what a dissonance why is it so? Uh, how did this uh, sort of narrative uh, emerge? Who enforced this narrative? Who reinforced this narrative? And I found some kind of answers to this particular question when I began to read the documents that, uh, that uh, came from the former KGB archive in Kharkiv uh, and in Kiev. So, I mean, uh, of course, sources are actually... Um, Help me confirm what I uh, what I've already known actually, uh, and uh, I realized that the KGB that's the institution, and that's those people who um, try to to provoke those hostilities artificially, and uh, the 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 reaction and the, the the actually the outcome was absolutely something that was unexpected. They just achieved something that they didn't expect to achieve. Resistance, unity, uh, friendships, links that extended even beyond Ukraine. So this is just something amazing what happened. So basically, and in other words, they built this labyrinth in which those people were supposed to be lost and subdued. And uh, in reality, what happened, they found some way out but the KGB was trapped in this labyrinth intellectually and rhetorically and uh, in any other possible way that's that's fascinating um, a very fascinating way to think about it and I think your, your work is a compelling argument for the integration of one's personal experiences and scholarly and intellectual uh, research um, so I have one final question that's about the book. Um, and one of the aims of the book that you state early on is to counter this um, popular narrative that the post-Stalin era was relatively mild and had few episodic uh, uses of state violence or secret police surveillance and persecution. By analyzing a non-Russian republic, in this case Ukraine, you show that there were, in fact, sustained and deliberate campaigns in the 1960s, 1970s, even through the 1980s in some cases. Um, so my question is, what can decentering the Soviet-Russian experience teach us about Soviet history in general? 
and maybe extrapolating from that, um, how should it cause us to think about and reflect uh, contemporary on contemporary issues in the post-Soviet space? Uh, so basically, w w how does looking at this um, non-Russian experience help us uh, understand a lot more about what's going on today and the legacies of, of the Soviet period? I believe, uh, I believe, and I, I'm, I'm not bragging about this, but I believe this book is just timely, simply amazingly timely and, and, and relevant. Uh, you know why? Because if you read this book uh, carefully, uh, noticing the details and nuances, I, I believe uh, it, it becomes clear that sort of uh, it portrays uh, Soviet Russian imperialism, right? It portrays Ukrainian consistent resistance. Uh, it portrays perhaps uh, the enduring power of, of the idea of the Ukrainian nation and language, uh, and I think you, you're right, and you just stated it, that in some ways, perhaps this book uh, provides a certain, um, I would say, a rebuttal to arguments that uh, Russia's hostility toward Ukraine and its uh, determined uh, assault on, on the truthful narrative on the truth, if you will, is deliberate uh, sort of manipulation of, of those notions such as fascism in Ukraine, right? Um, are somehow a, a response, I would say, to the uh, policies of post-Soviet Ukrainian leaders uh, or, or the West. Uh, and I believe uh, if you look at uh, Russia's approach today to 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 Ukraine. I mean, all those themes are so uh, sort of familiar, uh, recurrent, and recognizable from the past. Nothing changed. Uh, perhaps you know what has changed in, in terms of uh, their approach today? Technology. Technology contributed to their sort of uh, different uh, ways of, of, of uh, dealing with Ukraine. And today we, we observe a full-fledged full war, or, I mean, technological war, I mean, conventional war against Ukraine. But what preceded uh, this particular uh, assault? Information warfare, uh, operations of ideological subversion, uh, recruiting people uh, domestically, I mean, uh, those people who were undetermined, uh, to work for the FSB, for instance. And those sort of um, approaches, I mean, uh, to, to how to deal with this Ukrainian question, uh, they're very old, actually. We, we observed all of it, I mean, beginning from the 1950s. Uh, and it's amazingly similar. They're amazingly sim similar similar and that's what we have to understand that perhaps some um, some approaches changed but at the same time strategies the strategies and tactics stay the same and their general attitudes uh, toward um, the Ukrainians and the idea itself that Ukraine should exist as, as an independent entity uh, 
So we don't see much change in this respect. In this respect, and I believe this book shows uh, actually answers one uh, important question today: Why? Why did it happen? Why do we observe all this uh, violence? Uh, actually, uh, I identify those particular uh, events that began to happen in the 1930s with the Holodomor as a cluster of, of Russian genocides in Ukraine. It's a cluster of, of genocides. And, you know, when we try to pay attention, uh, so much attention to the Holodomor, let's not forgive, uh, for, forget about other cruel and violent acts um, in, in Ukraine during World War II, uh, after uh, let's not forget about the repressions. Let's not forget about, by the way, which continued until the very end of uh, of the Soviet Union. The last person who was, as far as uh, I remember, that was uh, who was arrested was Khmara in Ukraine, and it happened uh, c- very close, almost before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So th- those repressions, those hostilities, those attempts to suppress um, this independent nation and, and uh, their culture, to actually to eliminate their culture, uh, they never ended. I mean, they started from the very beginning, and that's what we observe today. So, I mean, the connection is very obvious. The continuity is traceable. Um, the the uh, probably those people who are still are not sure about why is it happening. I mean, uh, the war between these two brotherly uh, sort of people, right, between the Russians and, and Ukrainians. Uh, why is it happening? We have to look uh, at the roots uh, of, of this uh, sort of hostilities. And uh, believe me, uh, it just, they go far beyond. I mean, the, I mean they're deeper than uh, chronologically the, the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, let's not forget that uh, it's just another interesting part of history that uh, not very much uh, also has been written about, meaning about the the templates that the uh, Russian uh, nation uses to to um, in its approach to 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 Ukraine. I mean, actually, the, the roots are ancient. But more obvious and more more sort of pronounced are, of course, those that we observed from the beginning of the 20th century after the uh, Soviet Union was created. And then for, for uh, ordinary people, it's just more sort of this close sort of history is more understandable, perhaps, uh, because some of them, some of our contemporaries still remember World War II. Uh, they, rem- they lived through this period. They, they are still sometimes uh, wondering what is happening. But uh, for, for the majority of people, especially for those who lived through this period in Ukraine, the answer is quite transparent. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I certainly agree with you. The book is very, very timely. And I really liked your point that the KGB is kind of stuck in its own labyrinth, now the FSB, and and only knows how to act from from this framework. Um, 
my final question is a um, another standard at the New Books Network, and and that is just to ask, what are you working on next, or what do you have on the horizon in terms of research? Perhaps this book about the Saburo Vadacha. Uh, this is just the future, Anna, but uh, I have uh, a lot of material already collected for this book, but still I have to finish two books that uh, I already wrote, but I'm still in the process of editing these two books. First book uh, is uh, about Budinak Slovo, and this is just a uh, physical place, a building that exists today um, still, I hope, and it will still stand because it survived World War II. Hopefully it will survive this war. Uh, the the um, building that uh, was actually um, was built by the Union of Writers uh, at, in, the, in the late uh, 1920s. Budinak Slova, where a lot of famous writers lived. And this is just actually the topic of my doctoral thesis. And uh, this book is ready to go, but I have to edit it and and finally publish it. This is just uh, the first project. The second that I'm working on uh, is a book that also uh, has been written, but I'm still editing and changing some things in light of most current events. Uh, I'm writing about the uh, KGB and Soviet and also Russian operations of ideological subversion uh, in the West, uh, most specifically operations that um, of penetrating, uh, at least at attempts at penetrating um, Western academia, attempts at co-opting, uh, the, the, I mean, uh, Western scholars, attempts at uh, reinforcing uh, Soviet narratives in the West. Uh, and I'm writing about the tools and methods and strategies uh, of uh, the Russian secret services how they approach this particular challenge. So that's the future book that will be published soon, I hope. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I look forward to seeing both of those in print. Um, thank you so much for joining me and for, for sharing your time and for the fascinating discussion of your book. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. It um, is full of details and is really beautifully written and thank you again, uh, Dr. Bertelson. Thank you very much, Anna, for, for your time and for your questions. Thank you. Thank you. We have been discussing Olga Bertelson's In the Labyrinth of the KGB, Ukraine's Intelligentsia in the 1960s and 1970s, out in 2022. Thank you. <laughs>